welcome to another episode of Pilgrim Talk, Theology for Sojourners. Pilgrim Talk is a weekly podcast devoted to the discussion of the Christian faith for the Christian sojourner as they travel to the heavenly city. I'm John Sweat. I'm Dylan Harrison. What's going on, man? Nothing much. I hope you've had a good week. I have. Yeah. Been skyrimming it up. Ah, Dovahkiin indeed. I don't know what you just said to me, but I, sure, amen. Yeah, right. You have no idea what that means. <laughs> so I kind of almost introduced our topic on accident just then. I hope you have a good week. Mm. We're going to be talking about hope today. So the pilgrim's hope, more specifically. But when we think of hope in the context of today's vernacular, it has been broken down and almost stripped of all meaning and turned into this, I wish well for you or for myself. I hope you have a good day. I hope you feel better. And that's kind of all it's become in the world and, and Christian world even. That's the only hope that we reference on a regular basis. But we're going to be contrary to that in today's episode, are we not? Yeah, I mean, we're going to look in particular at First Peter um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, which really centers on this theme of the Christian's hope and really throughout First Peter's epistle. But yeah, I think when we talk about hope often, we it's a sort of wishful a sort of thinking. It has no basis in reality. It has no sure expectation behind it that the thing in which you hope for is actually going to happen. Or even possible. Or even possible. So there's this sort of empty hope on one side, but there's also idols of hope, things that we Christians do this as well, but but you see this in unbelievers, things that they have placed all their hope in, and when those things shatter to the ground... They are moved to despair. What are, what are some examples you would think of with that? So where you hope that something comes true, idolize it, and then it doesn't, so you're let down. I would say sports would be maybe not deep, but true analogy. When you really hope that the Georgia Bulldogs are going to win the national championship, and then they don't. Every year. Every year. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that could be an idol built up on hope that has no confidence. It could, it could be. It could be. If your hope has replaced the Christian hope, right? So yeah. let's get... let's get More serious. More serious. Yeah. I would say relationships. Relationships, okay. Yeah, I would say a hope towards something in a relationship, whether it's between a husband and wife or parents and children. They're building up this hope that, we'll use the children example, that their child would achieve something or that their child would grow in a certain aspect of their life. And they've put all of that hope in nothing. Uh, Okay, I want uh, my son to be able to defend the faith at a certain age. I just really hope he's able to do that. That's all the work I'm going to put into it. Well, right now he thinks my daughters are the Trinity, so. Yeah, the, the uh, are they three in one was yeah. the question during family worship. I'm like, no, they're they're not. <laughs> they're all sweat girls, but yeah. then they're Kylie, Peyton, and Sailor. So he, yeah. was, he was trying. He was trying. Uh, but my hope is in, in nothing. It's in osmosis. He's just going to learn these things and, you know, turn 13 and all of a sudden be some theologian and scholar. What am I putting my hope in there? There's nothing I'm doing towards it. There's no confidence that I'm building up in light of it. And it's going to be empty. It's not going to carry any weight. And then if that happens, though hopefully not, hopefully not, the way that I just described and, and my son, you know, rejects the faith, I feel as if what Christ has failed 
God has failed, and yet it was neither of those things. It's that my hope was not in the right thing. I think similarly of unhealthy churches. I have some experience with that in my past, and this sense of hope that the church, not not the church as described biblically here, I'm meaning the corporation, the organization itself, somehow carries with it a hope for salvation, a hope for uh, better living and better morals. So then when an unhealthy church inevitably fails you, you reject God because of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you see this pattern time after time in unhealthy churches, most of which get portrayed in the news, of course, and that's not the best thing, but of a <clears throat> pastor who rose up in a community and began to grow a church, air quotes there, and then some moral failing has, you know, caused an issue there. And most of those people leave that church to never return to a church. What was their hope in? Mm-hmm. I doubt that it was in Christ. Mm. I bet their hope was in emotions. I bet their hope was in positive feelings, in charismatic teachers and leaders. But their true hope was not where the Christian's hope should lie. And I think we should go to First Peter to see that and where it is, as opposed to, in these examples, placing your hope in empty things. Mm. Yeah, and the distinction here is not that it's sinful or idolatrous to have desires or even wishes, like as a good desire maybe for your yeah. son. Oh, absolutely. Uh, or to have a certain hope for our nation, politics, yeah. or... A, or hope, hope for unity in a church. Yeah. It's not a bad um, thing to have. Or a position at work, but it's when those things are the ultimate. Because p- hope's a pretty powerful thing, and when someone loses something that they have ultimate place ultimate hope in, there is a sense of great loss mm-hmm. um, and emptiness. Yeah. So let's go to First Peter. So First Peter is a book we continue to go to here in this podcast. I think we did two episodes in the previous season on it. But Peter really lays out the fact that that Christians are are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. And the thing that he, from the very beginning, seeks to do to encourage them is to remind them of where their hope is. They were living underneath the tyrannical reign of Nero, and they needed to be reminded that they are pilgrims passing through. And while it appears that Nero is Lord, they need to realize that it is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And Peter reminds him of that as well. But let's look at let's look at this verse. Let's read. Uh, let's go and read all all of the verses. Uh, verses three through twelve. Yeah, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mm. You want to continue? 
Yeah, we can say verses 10 through 12 for the for the back end. So Peter really, this whole section, 3 through 12, if I remember, it's one sentence. And he really is driving home this point of the Christian's hope. And in verses 3 through 5, he begins by reminding them, hey, you've been born again to a living through the, through, through the power of God, according to God's mercy. And notice all of the verbs here, Dylan, in 3 through 5, are, they're all, God is the one doing them. Yeah. There, we see God's sovereignty here, God's great, like, God's mercy, and just in case you're missing it, God's great mercy, yeah. right, that he's shown us. Especially um, when, with, in verse 3, he has caused us mm. to be born again in a living hope. And then in verse 5, he is guarding us through faith for salvation to be revealed at the last time. Uh, that he is the beginning and the end of mm. this action. He, he started it, he's going to finish it. And, and I think that's it, that should be pointing to his glory and in some way giving us peace, which is part of this hope thing we're talking about, and I'm sure we'll get to it. Yeah, man. Yeah, so it is this idea that the Christian has been predestined by God and is being preserved by God. Yep. He already in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 1, speaks of these Christians being elect you know, according to the foreknowledge of God. And so there's this security that is that, that we have in our salvation in Christ. It is through the work of, it is, is according to God's mercy through the work of Christ and the application of that work to us by the Spirit that the Christian can have this living hope that's unshakable. Yep. Living hope that is sure. And I think Romans 5.5 5 is a great text on this, Dylan. And this talks about sort of the difference between uh, uh, a hope that puts us to shame. We have often have hopes and things in this life, and they, they put us to shame. They let us down. But this hope we're talking about doesn't do that. Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out on us by the work of the Son, through the Spirit, and our, our hope then can be sure. It's not a wishful sort of thinking. It cannot be put to shame because it is it is in God himself and what God has done. I think the biggest thing that points to, and actually before the we started recording, pulled up the etymology of the word hope. Because I think, you know, when you control definitions and control the dictionary, you you can shape a lot of things. And I wondered like, okay, where where did hope change? Literally the word, because how it's used today compared to what we're talking about. But at the earliest definitions of hope, it was a future, a confidence in the future with Christ as its basis. Mm. Like that's what hope means. We've turned it into something else, but it means exactly what we're talking about. And we're talking about preservation and and especially verses six through nine, you know, verses five through three. <clears throat> That God has called us and He's He's keeping us. Well, that's great and all, but now we have to put it in the context of of six through nine, which is suffering. That this hope exists in suffering because of the love of Christ. What would hope be like without the love of Christ? Mm. Well, by my definition, it wouldn't be hope anymore. But if we're going to keep calling it that, I think it's what we see in the world today. It is. Hope in the government, hope in a politician, hope in fill in the blank. It carries no confidence. It carries no meaning. It's frantic. Absolutely. And it's, it's feeble. Yeah. And, and how, how has that either willingly or unknowingly infiltrated the mindset of the pilgrim? Mm. That because I have this 
pessimistic attitude or pessimistic hope, contradiction there, towards the world, towards government, towards politics, towards education. How has that in some ways affected our hope towards Christ? That's getting a good point there of this idea of the pilgrim, his hope in Christ can be shaken because he begins to have a wrong view of hope and what he sees in the world in which he lives. And I don't know exactly if I'm going to get at what you're getting at here, but so the Christian's a two-age sojourner, right? He's a citizen of this world, but he's also a citizen of a greater kingdom that is outside of this world. And what can often happen is the, the pilgrim forgets about that other citizenship. Yeah. And he begins to love this world, and he begins to feel defeated in this world, begins to f- be moved to despair, begins to lose hope, right? Because he's 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 taken the hope that he's to have in Christ, and he's now placed it in some earthly things. And that then leads him to then, when he hears about the Christian hope, to really go, well, this is just like yeah, all the other things An- that I've hoped in. Another movement, another false start, essentially. Yeah, but Peter here, and this is great, because Peter really is, he talks about in verse 3, a uh, living hope, and then really he talks about an inheritance in verse 4. He's talk, they're the same thing. He's just now describing it in a different way. And this inheritance that we receive is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All the things that sin does is quite the opposite of those. Yeah. All the things that we know in this world perish, fade, and are corrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not even by sin, but just decay in time. But this inheritance we have is quite the opposite. And so the pilgrim must first look to Christ and then seek to be faithful in this world. He can't seek to be faithful in this world and then occasionally look to Christ. <clears throat> right. Because what a, he'll, he'll then take his experience here and import it there. Yeah. We're not saying that in a way that be cautious, you might not have salvific hope in Christ. No. We're, we're not implying that because, and I think this is important in verses six through nine, what does it mean when it says obtaining salvation? Could you break that down for me? Yeah. So in six through nine, he now in light of, you know, he grounds it really, he, you know, he, verse six, in this you rejoice. And what? Well, this living hope that I think he's just described in verses three through five, he now moves into why we can have joy and suffering. And as he's talking about this, he talks about this idea of obtaining salvation. And and Peter especially, but also uh, in the New Testament, salvation can refer to our justification, God's declaration of us being righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, past, done, one punctiliar final act done through the imputation of Christ to us, received by faith. Salvation can also refer to the present and our sanctification, us being saved from the power of sin. So there's a present salvation that we are by the power of the Spirit, pursuing by faith. But here, Peter spends a lot of time, I think especially because of the pilgrim theme and because of the fact that these Christians he's writing to are suffering and reminding them of a salvation that is yet future, uh, a salvation that is obtained at the return of Christ. Here, I think he's talking about glorification. Yeah. When we will be saved not just from the penalty of sin, justification, or the power of sin, sanctification, but from the very presence, presence. of sin. Being saved from suffering yeah. itself, where that hope, where that that hope will become uh, a full reality for us as our faith becomes sight. And I think there's evidence of that 
even in this text itself, when you look back at the end of verse four, excuse me, verse five, by who God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. I think that's the salvation he's talking about there, not saving faith in Christ Jesus. Like we already obviously have that in the context here. What are we going towards? That's the salvation I believe he's referring to there. Yeah, and in just verse nine. real quick, going to 13, same thing. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, the Christians already have grace? Yes. Yeah. But there's a sense in which the fullness of that grace is revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice, yep. we're going to have an episode on these texts, but... Peter grounds the Christian's call to holiness mm-hmm. and the fact that they'll be looking forward, fully set, their eyes, their gaze set and focused on their king who is coming. Yeah. But looking back at those verses, you're about to say something about six through nine. You know, here's this this sort of countercultural thing of having joy and suffering. And I yeah. mean countercultural for Christians in America, because we have a very petty, I think, understanding of what suffering is. By God's grace, we've been able to have freedoms that many Christians in the world have not had. It's been both a blessing for the church, I think, in America, and it's been both a curse. And often we we attribute our suffering for the gospel to some of the 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 pettiest things. And so, you know, what is the contrast here between this view of suffering that we see, yeah. Dylan, with sort of Christian American Christianity, yeah. if you will? I think there's definite contrast there, but also some comparisons. So l- let me explain. I think the largest contrast contrast is seen corporately. And, I, and let me explain what I mean by that. When we compare suffering seen here in verses 6 through 9, testing our faith by various trials, even for a short time, and we look at the American Christian church, that suffering has not occurred. Y- you think of... The attacks, air quotes for the listeners, against the American church over the last 20 years, and they've been what? I mean, up until the the COVID restrictions, I'd say, are the first real serious one. Some bad press in the media, some people calling you names on Facebook and Twitter. I, I don't think that compares to directly Nero in Rome in the first century. However, I don't want to belittle the suffering of the individual. While the at-large American Christianity has not experienced the type of suffering that Peter is talking about here, I do think in the life of the individual, the death of a family member, there's some comparisons there. That's not a, a, a small trial when you know a family member dies, potentially, especially not in the faith, or especially if it's the death of a child or something like that, where it's... it's definitely grievous. However, by and large, what people call suffering in Christianity is nothing compared to the suffering that the first century church endured that Peter is talking about here. They're typically talking about not getting a promotion at work. They're talking about not being able to go on the vacation that they wanted to because the family's sick. Or I don't want to say petty things, but little things that they call suffering or they call persecution that I don't think meet those definitions. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction, too, between the the corporate church and individuals. Because I know some brothers and sisters, and you do, too, in our body right now, suffering greatly. 
And we're talking about suffering for the gospel, so wrestling with the sovereignty of good and goodness of God and the fact that right now, Lord, it feels like you have me pressed underneath your thumb. And I know that that's, that's not what Scripture teaches. I know yeah. that God, that Scriptures reveal that you're not capricious and that you love us with a steadfast love. But I am struggling right now to sing these songs on Sunday, to read this psalm and believe that, mm-hmm. seeing what's going on in my life. And I, I, so I think that's a great distinction. I just want to encourage those people listening. Man, when you look at verses 6 through 9, in light of the living hope, why is it that we can rejoice in suffering? Because even in the testing of our faith— Think of something as beautiful and costly as gold that that perishes in fire. When we are tested in our faith, it is so that or for the purpose that we might be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think the two encouraging things there are in verse six or three, if you will, that we rejoice because it's only for a little while Mm. and it is necessary Mm. that this suffering, true suffering for the gospel, for salvation, for living hope, as it's seen here, is only for a little while, if necessary. That means when it's happening, it is under God's providence. It is in his plan and his will, and it is necessary for something, even if we don't fully grasp it at this time. And it's only for a little while. Mm. And I think that should give the greatest rejoicing. I mean, it, they tie that directly to the rejoicing at the beginning of the verse because it's temporary, because God has deemed it necessary. Rejoice. Momentary affliction. Yep. Compared to what? I've been suffering for <laughs> five, ten years. Compared to eternity. eternity. Compared to the glory of God. Compared <laughs> to the way that you suffer, how that encourages other brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And how it gives them a chance to love you and to be the church to you, to love your body. So when we when you continue moving on here, he's building this case for the Christian's hope. He says, hey, you've been born again to a living hope. You have joy and suffering, verses 6 through 9. And then he reminds him of something that might seem a little bit disjointed from the rest of the text. Verses 10, 10 through, through 12. 12. He talks about a, a grace that was promised to them. I'll read that for us. Verse 10, concerning this salvation. So that he just talked about in, in, in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of, of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that they have been that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's an interesting text. Very. It feels disconnected in a way, but at the same time, he says it directly concerning this salvation. So it definitely connects in some way. What are we missing here? What is the element of grace that connects to the suffering? How do we reconcile this? So, a couple things here. One, notice he is speaking of the Old Testament and yep. speaking of the prophets. The prophets who prophesied about what? About the grace that was to be yours, Christian. New Testament Christian, the grace that was to be yours was prophesied and spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. But notice what he does with that. Notice we're talking about living hope. We're talking suffering with joy. Notice what he does then. Notice where he moves. He moves to what the prophets say about Christ. Yeah. 
that he should suffer and then be glorified. And where they got that was the part of this verse that that took me off guard, if you will, when we were going into this, of it was the spirit of Christ in them that indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets Mm. as they were prophesying the suffering that Christ was to go through. And it just took me a second after reading that. (laughs) Yeah. Because it it just points to so many things from the Spirit working in the Old Testament to all the way to when when I pictured – now, this isn't isn't the text. This is my imagination here. I pictured Christ in the garden praying those three times that if there's any way this cup could pass me by – but the spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophesying that cup's existence. So, so it just points to the level of sacrifice, the level of suffering that he knew he was going to be going through, which elevates his love for us. It, it just humbled me when I mm. thought of it that way, that it wasn't a temporary thing in the mind of Christ, if you will, this suffering. He, his spirit had been predicting it since the prophets. Mm. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And, and there's a question of what, what texts are – what texts are, is, is, he, is he talking about here? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, some will say, you know, it's Isaiah 52 to 53. 53. You know, is he doing – is there sort of a theology that he is drawing upon from the theme of all the prophets? You know, you mm-hmm. see something with, when Lim preached from our text. And John, this past week, he referred to a quotation that John makes Which of the Old Testament. Summary. You're like, well, what text is that? Well, it's yeah. really not, but it's really the theology of all the themes in the text that yep. speak on that thing. But I, I think you're right. You think about this for a second. The the Jews of Jesus' day thought when the Messiah came, it was glory. Mm-hmm. Glory. Salva- the, the obtaining the salvation of your faith, glory, done, uh, the kingdom set up in its fullness. And yet Peter here is like, bros, the, he didn't say bros. bros. I don't know what that would be in Greek. Bros, Peter, probably. Yeah. He he's saying, guys, the the prophets himself prophesied that the sufferings come before the the glories of Christ, and what he's going to do, Peter. What, what I think he makes this connection is throughout the rest of the book, he's reminding the Christian, hey, you've been called to suffer, you've been called to suffer by the will of God. Embrace that with joy, and know that it's for a short time, and that the glory is is to come yep. when we're glorified. And he ends with that great encouragement again. He says, you know, this is the grace that was to you. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, who? The prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Now, look, there's a rich, you've already alluded to it, a rich theology of scripture here, what scripture is and how the old and the new relates. But Christian, you need to read the Old Testament. It was was revealed to the prophets for you. And your understanding of the gospel and the work of Christ is only magnified and made that much clearer and more beautiful the deeper you understand the Old Testament and the yeah. way these things connect. It's almost as if the – well, we, we already said it in, in Romans 5 that that suffering produces – well, enduring the suffering produces hope. And now we're saying that that hope helps us endure the suffering. So there's a cyclical nature to that to where 
as we're going through this suffering that we've obviously is necessary and, and temporary, um, our hope helps us endure that and then enduring it produces new hope. Mm. So the hope in Christ properly seen here can't run out. Hope helps you endure, which builds more hope, which helps you endure worse, which builds more hope. So to see that play off of each other is encouraging because it means there's a purpose behind it all. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that we might be found to the praise and glory and honor of Christ. Amen. And I think the benediction of Romans is a great place to, to end here, Dylan. Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. There we go. Thanks again for listening to Pilgrim Talk. And once again, we'd encourage you to visit us on Facebook. You can search Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for F-O-R. And again, if you found this episode helpful or you know someone that might benefit from it, go ahead and share it with your friends. 